Okay, we're in uh, Revelation chapter 5. I think we finished chapter 4 last time. You should have notes. Everyone get a copy of the notes? Okay. I'm going to start handing them out one chapter at a time uh, as we start it because hopefully we'll make it through one chapter. Uh, but also I found that when I get handed stuff that invariably I forget and leave it at home and then uh, we have to make more copies. So uh, anyway, uh, chapter 4 and 5, um, the main thing there is God is in control. Uh, not Caesar, not Rome. Uh, God is on his throne. Uh, uh, he's obviously, you know, the God of over everything, the God of Rome, the God over the uh, Roman emperor. And so this was to uh, chapters 4 and 5 assure those first uh, century Christians uh, that God is, is, as we said in chapter 1, uh, Christ still is alive. Uh, chapters 2 and 3, he knows what's going on. And then chapters 4 and 5, he's capable of doing something about it because he is the God of, all of the Almighty God. So uh, that's the thought there. When we get into chapter 6 and following, uh, we're going to see you know, Christ in Matthew chapter 28, verse 18. He's been given all authority on heaven and on earth. And then so in verses 6, 6 through 11... Uh, we're going to see where it shows that you know, Christ is exercising this authority uh, when he opens the seals and uh, uh, causes the trumpets to be blown and then eventually the bowls of God's wrath are poured out. So, so in chapter 5, uh, the first uh, in verses 1 through, uh, he begins, let's see, and I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll written inside and on the back, sealed with seven seals. Uh, a scroll, if you're not familiar with, it, it was like a roll of paper towels. Just, it wasn't like a roll of paper towels, but it's sort of like a roll of paper towels. It would roll off one thing. Often there was two rods that it would roll on. And typically they were written only on one side. Uh, they were written on one side because as they rolled them together, uh, that would protect the writing. And so to be written on two sides uh, was unusual. Uh, usually it, it meant that this was something important or something more uh, than one scroll could handle. Some of the scrolls were like 30 foot long, if I remember right. So, uh, and of course, you realize this is all handwritten. It wasn't, you know, uh, Times Roman 12 point font. So, and uh, sealed with seven seals. And so this scroll was sealed. And when we think about sealing, typically what it was is something would have been tied around it and then there would have been either put like clay on, on whatever was tied on or wax or something. And if it was sealed seven times, uh, it, it implied something of great importance. Uh, normally they weren't sealed that many times. Um, and so seals, um, when we think about that, we don't, what we use today to, uh, well, what do we use today to uh, show that something is genuine? Or something, well, that it's, you're not going to go where I want you to go. But if you're, if you're, um, if you're signing a, a, a paper and they, whoever you're, yeah, that's it. 
notary, notary, notary public, okay? And I think Terry's one, and she has a seal. And she embosses the paper, and then she dates it and signs it. And so it was to show that, it, when we use it today, to show that this, whatever document we'd sign, or whatever it may be, uh, is genuine, that this person was signing it. And so a seal was used to guarantee authenticity, that this was truly something written by this individual or something from a king. Uh, let's look at a couple passages. Look at 1 Kings chapter 21, uh, verse 8. Someone wants to read that. Um, Esther chapter 8, verse 8. And then Esther chapter 3, verse 12. Actually, we'll read Esther 3, verse 12 to begin. All right, 1 Kings 21, 8. So she wrote letters in Ahab's name and sealed them with his seal and sent the letters unto the elders and to the nobles that were in his city. Okay, the situa situation here was Jezebel wrote letters and then she put Ahab's seal on it to show that, you know, to give the impression that it had come from the king. And if I remember the context there, uh, it was uh, concerning um, Naboth and his piece of property. Uh, Esther chapter 3, verse 12. Okay, so that, that seal with the king's ring guaranteed it to be authentic. And then the last one, Esther 8.8. 8. Okay, another reason seals were used were to confirm transactions. Let's look at Jeremiah chapter 32. And in verses 10 through 14, uh, we read, hold on one second. And I signed the deed, Jeremiah was buying a piece of property, and I signed the deed and sealed it, took witnesses and weighed the money on the scales. So I took the purchase deed, both that which was sealed according to the law and custom, and that which was open, and I gave the purchase deed to Barak, the son of Neriah, son of Meshiah, Meshiah, in the presence of Hanamel, my uncle's son, and in the presence of the witnesses who signed the purchase deed before all the Jews who sat in the court of the prison, then I charged Barak before them, saying, Thus says the Lord God of hosts, the God of Israel, Take these deeds, both this purchase deed which is sealed and this deed which is open, and put them in an earthen vessel uh, that they may last many days. And I believe in verse... So here it was used, the seal was to use to confirm that, that this purchase transaction was made. Um, when we think about seals, what do we normally comes to our mind? What about when Jesus was laid in the tomb? Remember they rolled the stone across the opening and they sealed it, the text says? 
And what they did is they put a rope across there and then on each side of that rope they would either put clay or something and or something to hold that rope or whatever it was. And so if someone moved that stone, it would break that rope or whatever it was loose and it would tell them that someone had tampered with things. So seals were used for uh, security purposes, you know, make sure that a door that had been closed uh, were sealed. Uh, I remember years ago, it uh, wasn't long after I uh, came to Orange Street that uh, one of the members at that time, they're no longer here, uh, gave, uh, gave uh, the elders some information uh, and they asked me to put it in a file and, and while we were there talking, I, I put it in a manila, manila envelope and, you know, sealed it, you know, put the little things on and then I signed my name across the, uh, where the flap of the envelope came to the envelope. That way, if someone had opened it, it wouldn't line back up again uh, in my signature. So it was just a way of, of using a seal was a way to make sure something was what it should have been if it was uh, secured. Um, they were used to mark ownership. Sometimes wine would be stored in these, these containers and they would put a seal on top of it to show uh, um, what it was, you know, who it belonged to. So when we go back here to Revelation, and we read, uh, let me get back here again. Um, he saw in the right hand of him a scroll written inside and on the back, sealed with seven seals. So it's sealed, but it's sealed with seven seals. And seven obviously makes this is something that was very important. And I saw a strong angel. Notice, not just an angel, but a strong angel. Proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and to loose its seal? In other words, here's this sealed document. Who has authority? Who has the authority? Who is able to open these seals? Because just not anybody could do that. It was to the person that had the authority or was able to do that. And so John wept much, verse 4, because no one was found worthy to open and read the scroll or look at it. But one of the elders said to me, do not weep or stop weeping. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has prevailed to open the scroll and to loose its seven seals. And so here we are. We have this guy. Okay. The lion of the tribe of Judah. Well, who is that? Well, it's easy to say, but you've got to prove it. Why would we think that that's the Lord? What tribe was Jesus from? All right, that's not a trick question. What tribe was David from? What tribe of Israel? You're asking me or telling me? <laughs> Judah, Judah, in Genesis chapter 49, when Jacob gives the blessing to his sons, he talks about Judah and that the scepter will not depart from him. He's going to be a ruler. And we know that, Je da uh, that Jesus was a descendant of David, who was of the tribe of Judah. Remember when David and Saul, when Saul was pursuing David, 
and Saul died. Remember, it was the, um, the Judeans that made David king. He was king over Judah, but he was not king over the other tribes until they, they came to make him king. So there was this disparity or this gap in here. So David was of the tribe of Judah, and so Jesus obviously was a descendant of Judah, but it calls him the Lion of Judah. Typically, when we think about Christ, what comes to our mind? Obviously, Savior, but we think of this loving, kind, you know, baby in the manger, but not here. He's the Lion of the tribe of Judah. Now, lions, you just have those in your house and you cuddle up next to them at night and all those things. That's not the picture we get, do we? He's the lion of the tribe of Judah. Notice what else does it say? He's the root of David. Well, when we think about a root, what do we think about? A base. Typically, when we think about root, do we think of living or non-living type of thing? Living. Plants have roots, okay? So it says here he is the root of David. Which comes first, the root or the plant? Okay. But where did Jesus come? Did he come before David or after David? He was before and after. He was after in that he was a descendant of David, but he was before in the sense that what? He's God. He's eternal. John chapter 1, verse 3, all things, nothing was made except that the word made them. Isn't that what that says? And so he's the root of David. He's the lion of tribe of Judah. Has prevailed. Remember back in chapter 2 and chapter 3 when it talked about when Jesus was going through the, um, the different congregations and, and either praising them or condemning them or doing a little bit of both? Do you remember what he said that, you know, as those that he had some, that had some problems and he told them? Do you remember what he said? If you do this, then you will receive whatever it was. Do you remember what he said? What? No. To he that overcomes. Overcomes. That word overcome is the word from which the Greek word Nike. You ever heard that? Look at your shoes. You may have Nike shoes on. Well, that means victory. He that overcomes. This word prevailed here is from that same root word, Nike, victory. Christ has prevailed. He has overcome. He has been victorious. And so one of the elders said to me, do not weep. Stop weeping. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has been victorious. He's prevailed to open the scroll and to loose its seven seals. He has the authority, he is worthy, he has the power. And I looked and behold in the midst of the throne and of the four living elders, or four living creatures and in the midst of the elders stood a lamb as though it had been slain. 
Well, that word, those words, as though it had been slain, carries the idea, a lamb that was slaughtered. Well, we think about Jesus. He was whipped mercilessly. He was nailed to a tree. He was slaughtered. And so here, the lamb that was slain, when we get in chapter 6 to the souls that are under the altar, is going to use this same word. They were slaughtered. And so the lamb, as though it had been slain, having seven horns. Well, what kind of animals have horns? Bulls? Elks? Deer? Water buffaloes? <laughs> so, John, you're, you're an ex-deer hunter or a deer hunter. If you're out in the woods and, and you see a deer that has just one little horn up and then you see a door, deer that has, you know, 25 points, which one are you going to aim at? Well, why? Okay, well, I mean, you would think he'd be more powerful. You don't get 25 points the first year, do you? You know, there's a process here. And so horns carry the idea of power. Power. And so to have seven horns, seven, a number of completeness, what does that say about this lamb that was slain? He has complete power. Well, isn't that what Jesus said in Matthew 28, verse 18? All authority has been given to me in heaven and earth. Couple passages in your outline. I probably should look at your outlines and stay with you. Uh, all right. Look at uh, look at Deuteronomy thirty-three, verse seventeen. Someone look that up. Uh, that's that's going to be used here to describe the strength of Joseph's sons among the tribes of Israel. First uh, Samuel chapter two verse ten. Uh, it's describing the power of Jehovah's king. Uh, Deuteronomy thirty three verse seventeen. Someone have that. Notice, with those horns, he will push the peoples to the ends of the earth. Power. Uh, 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 10. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken in pieces. From heaven he, he will thunder against them. The Lord will judge the ends of his earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. Second uh, Chron Chronicles 18, verse 10. Now Zedekiah, the son of Chenanah, had made horns of iron for himself and said, Thus says the Lord, with these you shall gore the Syrians until they are destroyed. So horns signified power. Uh, when we have the vision of Daniel, you have this, these one cre creatures with three horns and some with one horn. And so the seven horns suggest complete power. Well, he looked and he says he saw a lamb as though it had been slain, having seven horns and seven eyes. Well, we think if it's seven eyes and seven is a sense of completeness, 
What do we see? What do we? Well, I gave you the answer to that. What do we do with our eyes? We see things. If I can completely see, what does it suggest? See everything. See everything. And there's also in chapter 4, verse 5, uh, it, it may reflect, uh, refer, refer to the uh, spirits of God. And when the throne preceded, lightnings, thunderings, voices, seven lamps of fire be, were burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. Um, so, but I think in this context that it represents that Jesus is aware of everything. Chapters 2 and verse thir- chapters 3, I know your works. And so we get this picture that John sees this vision. He see the, uh, one of the elders tells him, stop weeping. Stop weeping because the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has been victorious. It's been, he's prevailed to open the scroll, to loose its seven seals, and in the midst of him, he sees this lamb that as a slaughtered lamb, as lamb as though it had been slain, having complete power, complete knowledge, complete sight, uh, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And then he came and took the scroll out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. So we get this picture. Here's this lamb that John sees taking this scroll from the one that's set on the throne. Now when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each having a heart and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song. Notice a couple things. Uh, They had hearts. Where are they? Where are the the, uh, 24 elders and the four living creatures located? In heaven. They surround the throne. So they had hearts. We don't have hearts. There's nothing in the New Testament that suggests that New Testament Christians are to use mechanical instruments and praise to God while here on earth. Heaven's different than us, different than uh, the world here. In Matthew chapter... thinking it's 22. Anyway, the scribes and Pharisees, I don't remember exactly, oh, it's Matthew chapter 22 beginning in verse 23. The Sadducees come to Jesus and say, here's this lady. She's, she's married a man. This man dies. She goes through. She ends up marrying seven brothers. And in the resurrection, whose wife shall she be? And Jesus said, you don't understand because in heaven, they are neither married or given in marriage, speaking of the angels. And the fact being is what Jesus is saying. There's no marriage as we know it in heaven. And so it implies that things are different in heaven than they are here upon earth. We can't use what goes on in heaven as our authority for what you and I do as New Testament Christians. 
So I notice each had a harp and each had a golden bowls full of incense, which represented what? Prayers of the saints. And so in the Old Testament, they would offer up incense and it represents the prayers that we offer up to God. So they sang a new song. And in that song, they're singing it to the lamb who was slain. You are worthy to take the scroll and to open the seals. For you were slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood. Anybody have an ESV? Ransom people um, out of every tribe, tongue, and people and nations and have made, the New King James says us, but the English standard says them, kings and priests to our God. And it's a textual issue. And the text is overwhelmingly that it should be them there instead of us. And we just think about it. Who's doing the singing here? The, the four living creatures and who? 24 elders, they're doing the singing. They sang a new song and have redeemed us. Or the living creatures need redemption? But to, to God by your blood and have made, did the God make the living creatures a kingdom and priest? Did he make the 24 elders a kingdom and priest? But we turn back to chapter 1 and we realize that um, in uh, verse Five and six, to him who loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood has made us kings or a kingdom and priests to his God and Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Well, who's John saying this to? Look at verse four. John to the what? Seven churches of Asia. So who is he writing to? He's writing to Christians. And he says, God has made us a kingdom and priest. And so back here in chapter 5, and, and in verse uh, 9 and in verse 10, uh, there's a textual issue, as I said. And they and them are a better translation. They have made them kings, a kingdom, and priests to our God and they shall reign on earth. And then I looked and heard the voice of many angels around the throne, and the living creatures and the elders. So around the throne so far we know are whom? 24 elders, four living creatures, and we're just told something else here. Angels. So. I looked and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne, the living creatures, the elders, and the number of them was 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands of thousands. What does ESV say that? Myriad. Myriad. Okay. 
in, um, in um, Greek, the highest number they had was 10,000. So 10,000 times 10,000 would be like the highest they could go. And what, it, what the thought is that there's innumerable, an innumerable number of angels and thousands of thousands. And they say with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain. There's that word again, who was slaughtered. To receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. So here are these creatures around the, around the throne. Worthy is the Lamb. Worthy is the Lamb to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. And every creature which is in heaven and on earth and under the earth and such as are in the sea and all that are in them I heard saying, so all creation, blessing and honor and glory and power be to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb forever and ever. So we get this picture that there's this throne scene of God, chapter 4, and we see this picture of God sitting on the throne and, and these elders around him and these four living creatures that are just unbelievable to our eyes that, that creatures could be like that. But they are. And they're praising God and they're telling God, holy, 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 God, you are holy. You're not just holy, you're really holy. No, you're not really holy. You are the holiest. And when we see those three terms like that, each one intensifies on the other to show that, that God is different than you and I. And we live in a time where, where we think that if I like it, if we like it, therefore God must like it. And no, God's different than us. His ways are higher than our ways. And so it sets him apart. And then we get in chapter 5. Here's this scroll. Obviously this scroll has something with what's going to take place. And there's no one to open it. And John begins to weep. And then he's told, stop weeping. Because there is one. The lion of the tribe of Judah. The root of, Je of David. And so now here they're praising him, giving him glory. Now I saw, well, we're chapter 6, so we've got to stop there for tonight. Any questions? Chapter 4 and 5, here's the throne of God. God is in control. God has the power. Jesus has all authority in heaven and earth. He's going to open those scrolls and enact this plan that God has that he's going to reveal in this symbolic way. Okay, any questions or comments? All right. We'll see you next week.